Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. A man who robbed a bank 10 years ago was sentenced to 70 months in the federal penitentiary. But he decided that he liked prison so much that he committed another crime just so he could return. Danny Villegas walked inside a federal credit union in Florida. He then told the teller that he was robbing her and then calmly added, you might as well call the police right now. Villegas then sat down on a couch in the lobby and waited for the police to arrive. Lieutenant Ron Wright of the South Daytona Police Department said, Villegas wanted to rob a federal bank because he wanted to go back to a federal penitentiary. Villegas had worked in construction in Texas for five years, but had grown tired of work. Apparently, added right, he robbed a bank in Fresno, California, 10 years ago. He was sentenced to 70 months in, federal, in a federal penitentiary in Phoenix, and he actually enjoyed his time there. Can you believe that? Someone actually wanted to stay in jail. It sounds crazy, but it happens every day. The only difference is it isn't always a physical jail. Instead, it is the prison of sin that many people choose to live in for the entirety of their lives, even though that freedom is available. There's a real danger there, and it is this. People can become so accustomed and comfortable in their sin and bondage that they will gladly choose that over their freedom. We're going to see Jesus deal with a group of people this morning who are thus blinded. But there is a difference, and it is a colossal one. The men who choose blindness in our account this morning aren't just going back for a few more years in prison for knocking over a piggly wiggly. No, their punishment is an eternal one in a place called hell. To set the context from last week, Jesus is warning them and all people that if they do not acknowledge him as the Son of God, they will die in their sins. And the result of that denial will be an eternal lake of fire. Before I move on, I want you guys to know that words like hell and eternal damnation just don't roll off my tongue in a blasé kind of way. I realize that by coming here, you hear some hard things. And the reason is there are some hard things in Scripture that God wants us to hear. The things we speak of here are far more important than just life and death. They are matters of eternity. You know, you can get a lot of things wrong in life and still be okay. You can choose the wrong career field. You can choose the wrong friends. You can choose the wrong house. You can choose the wrong car. You can even choose the wrong spouse. You can wrongly choose all of those things, and God can still work all that together for his good. But there is one choice you have to get right, and we find that at the beginning of verse 25. Look at it with me. We'll be spending most of our time in verse 32, but these previous verses sets things up for us. Then they said to him, who are you? 
And Jesus said to them, Just what I've been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you. But he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. It's been rightly said that the art of eloquence is knowing when not to speak. This is nowhere demonstrated more beautifully than in the life of Christ. As the Jews continue to badger him, Jesus says, There is so much more I could say, but I only speak those things that the Father instructs me to say. How tragic that these experts in the law did not even know their own Messiah as he stood directly in front of them. They claimed to know the law of God, but they did not know the God of the law. They did not have the word of God abiding in their hearts, and they did not experience his love. They did not know the Father, and therefore they could not know the Son. Verse 28, please. And Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. Now the lifting up of the Son of Man is speaking about the cross. When you see me on the cross, you're going to know I am, declares Jesus. When the sky is dark and the earth shakes and the graves are open and the veil is rent, you will understand that I am who I said that I was. And then Jesus makes this astounding claim in verse 29. I always do the things that please God. Only one person in history can make that claim. Do we understand what Jesus is saying when he says that? He is saying that every thought, every motive, every action I have ever done has been completely pleasing to my Father in heaven. This once again is the importance of being in Christ in regards to salvation. Why would I say that? Because God can now look at us who may blow it from time to time, but instead of judging us in our sins, he accepts us through his son. How can we know for sure if we are accepted this morning? One sure way is given in verse 31. And Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. This section of discourse, writes Leon Morse, is addressed to those who believe and yet do not believe. Clearly they are inclined to think that what Jesus said was true, but they were not prepared to yield to him the far-reaching allegiance that real trust implies. Morse goes on to caution. This is a most dangerous spiritual state. To recognize the truth that is in Jesus and do nothing about it means that, in effect, one aligns oneself with the enemies of the Lord. In other words, 
The verses distinguish between those listeners who had believed on Jesus unto salvation and those who had merely believed about certain things that he had said. You can't do that and be what the Bible calls a disciple. The word disciple means disciplined one. And so the question is, who are Jesus' disciples, his disciplined ones? Jesus says it is those who continue in, take heed to, and make a high priority of his word. And it is, they, and it is as they comprehend the truth of the word that they are free, really, truly free. But here's the recipe, if you will allow me to call it that. Jesus tells us the key to being his disciple is to abide in his word. How do we do that? We do that the same way we abide anywhere else. In fact, the word abode is related to the word abide. When someone asks you, where is your abode? They mean, where do you live? After I typed that, I thought, unless they're Amish, probably nobody in your entire life will ever ask you where your abode is, but the point still stands. In the same way you can choose to abide in a physical location, we can choose to abide in his word. What does that look like practically? Ephesians 4.21 tells us, the Apostle Paul says, If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. How do we abide in his word? That passage in Ephesians tells us that we are to purposely lay aside our old way of life and then put on the new self. Let me try to illustrate this. As we walk up to the closet of our lives in the morning, it's as if we have two sets of clothes that we can choose from. The old man and the new man. And so we have the ability to decide, I'm not going to put on the old man today. I'm refusing to put that on and take it out of the house. I instead choose to put on the new man. And in doing that, we are setting ourselves up for a robust and victorious Christian life. And during the day, when we feel our flesh rising up within us, we just have to say, no, sir, or no, ma'am. I left you in the closet this morning, and therefore I will be responding in the spirit rather than reacting in the flesh. But there is a caveat here. In order to do that successfully, you have to have a working knowledge of the word of God. Why? Because it will tell you how to respond to every temptation to sin your flesh will ever come up with. For instance, 
Did your boss or spouse or kids make you so angry that you wanted to lay hands on them, but not for prayer, for strangulation? The verse that should be in your head is James 1.20. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Or do you feel envious or unthankful when your neighbor pulls up in their new Lexus and they park it right next to your 1972 Chevette that you're still making payments on? <laughs> the verse that might pop in your head is Luke 12.15. And Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. You get the idea, I hope. This is the path to have a joyful and productive Christian life. And as we do that, we will know the truth, and the truth will make us free. Look at verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. I love the word truth. Jesus does not say you shall know the truth and the truth will make you weird. He says the truth will make you free. Sadly, the vast majority of people in America today are now almost completely illiterate to biblical truth. Do you think I'm being too harsh? These are some actual statements that were written by American young people concerning their knowledge of the Bible. Adam and Eve were created from an apple tree. Noah's wife was called Joan of Arc. Samson slayed the Philistines with the Acts of the Apostles. Moses went up on Mount Sinai and got the Ten Amendments. I love this one. Moses died before he could ever reach Canada. Then Joshua led the Hebrews in the Battle of Jericho. <laughs> the people who followed the Lord were the 12 decibels. The epistles were the wives of the apostles. And finally... The greatest miracle in all of the Bible is when Joshua told his son to stand still, and he did. Well, that would indeed be humorous if it wasn't so absolutely tragic. The ignorance you might expect to find in the furthest corners of the earth is really right around the corner at your front door. But it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus is saying we have all the truth we will ever need contained within the pages of the scripture. In his book, The Logic of God, Robbie Zacharias writes, Jesus splendidly coalesced extremes in his earthly ministry by bringing balance and detail to truth. He mesmerized the lawyers, doctors, and religious leaders with his authority and unassailable arguments but it was also said of him that he left the scholar that day amazed. But what was more, the common people heard him gladly. Robbie finishes by saying, Paul the rabbi, Luke the doctor, and Peter the fisherman all grasped reality as they had never grasped it before when he opened the doors of their hearts and minds to the truth. Now, when Jesus says that the truth will make us free, that implies that we are not free until we know the truth. 
And we live in a world right now where the majority of people no longer believe in what is called absolute truth. What that means is no one can be, know for sure if a moral judgment can be absolutely true. And so it really doesn't matter what any of us believe as long as we are sincere. People may say that, but when it is time for their daughter to go to the prom, they want the boy taking her to be a good Baptist. You've probably heard it put like this. What may be true for you may not be true for me. But that's what's called a self-defeating argument. For if there is nothing called absolute truth, then the idea or the sentence that nothing but nothing called absolute truth, then that can't be truth, truth either. But not only that, this kind of thinking leads people down a very dark path. I've listened to debates where people will now say things like, I don't like what Hitler did, but I can't call it wrong. To which Ravi replied to him, in some cultures they love their neighbors, in other cultures they eat their neighbors. Do you have a preference who you want your neighbor to be? But that is where such thinking eventually leads people if there is no such thing as absolute truth. Charles Darwin's sad admission that he was less and less able to appreciate Handel's Messiah because his philosophy of there being no truth excluded it. And most people, let's just be honest, don't even care if there's such a thing called truth anymore. On the comments of G.K. Chesterton, most present-day Anglo-American philosophers have the same concept of truth as that held by a slightly drowsy middle-aged businessman right after lunch. But while they say they don't believe in absolute truth, their lives contradict that on a daily basis. What do I mean? When people argue, here are the kinds of things that they say. I do far more work than you do around this house. We call those people husbands and wives. He got a bigger piece of dessert. He got a bigger allowance. He did fewer chores. He got a later curfew than I did, and it's not fair. We call those people brothers and sisters. Or you're a miserable boss, and this is a dysfunctional sweatshop, and I'm grossly overworked and criminally underpaid. We call those people unemployed. <laughs> what I'm getting at is when we argue, we just don't say, do what I say because I'm stronger than you and I can make you do it. No, we say things like, that's not right, or that's not good, or you're not being fair. In other words, we appeal to a standard that is independent and objective and, in high, and is higher than you and I. We appeal to this idea that there is such a thing as right and wrong and truth and falsehood. This world we live in isn't how it was supposed to be. And God certainly isn't the one to blame. Like it or not, all the wrong in the world started with mankind in the Garden of Eden. 
It's like that life alert commercial. I've fallen and I can't get up. Adam ate the fruit and thus blew it in the garden. As I've said in the past, it was the original atom bomb. And the blame game was invented. You can almost imagine Adam praying. Well, Lord, let's think for a minute. I failed because of the woman you dropped into my life. If you remember, oh, Lord, when it was just me and you and the animals, everything was cool. And so what does he and Eve try to do? They try to hide from Almighty God. The thought of Adam trying to hide from God would be funny if it wasn't so sad. It's kind of like a four-year-old playing hide-and-seek in a telephone booth with Sherlock Holmes. But let me make one thing abundantly clear this morning. We are the arsonist. We started the fire. God wants to rescue us not only from the fire we started, but also, and more importantly, from our disposition to start more fires from our lives of arson. But to be rescued from a life of arson requires that we know how destructive fires really are. Fires always start out small. And so if God instantly put out the fires we start, we would never appreciate the damage that our fires can do. We started a fire consenting to evil, and God now permits this fire to rage throughout the world. He grants this permission so that we can rightly understand the human condition and thus hopefully come to our senses. What we're talking about here are the people who buy the philosophy of the serpent. The children of the serpent, the offspring of the serpent are the people who buy these kind of lies. And what was the lie of the serpent in the garden? It's really very simple. Let me give it to you in a nutshell. It's simply this. God is the enemy of your happiness. If you're going to be happy and fulfilled, you're going to have to take your life into your own hands. Now that has passed down into everybody's heart, and that creates a hostility between us and God. We don't want to hear that we're not our own masters and saviors and lords. And so we try to take the helm of our own ship and navigate life apart from God. But that never works. And if you're feeling empty and purposeless, this very well, very well may be the Lord trying to get your attention this morning. He's doing this by showing you that nothing but a relationship with your Creator will ever truly satisfy your life. But we try, don't we? We go into, bet, go into debt to buy more and more things. So why do we still feel so empty? Your garage, your basement, and your storage unit may all be packed, but your life is still empty. It's kind of like eating a big meal. You feel full at first and for a while, but it doesn't last. You'll always need the next meal, the next purchase, the next jolt of brief fullness. But sooner or later, hopefully, we stop running, usually because we've run out of places to run to. 
We finally let the tears come, and that's when we can find the missing strength. The twist is, though, it's not our strength at all. It's the power of God's arms wrapped around us. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I share a faith in a sovereign God. That means he is in control of all things. Now, he could make our circumstances more pleasing if he thought it best. He could remove barriers. He can eliminate difficulties. If he does not do this, however, then he acts as he does for a purpose, and we should learn to trust him. One of those purposes is to undoubtedly to teach us to trust him, which we would never do if everything that ever came into our lives was always pleasant and life was always easy. C.S. Lewis aptly notes, I believe I'm not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. I say amen to that. James Dutton was the main character on the TV show Rock. But before Mr. Dutton became a famous actor, he spent some time in prison. One day he was being interviewed by a reporter who asked him why he never, never became a repeat offender. The reporter asked Dutton why he didn't commit another crime like so many other men do and then end up back in prison. Dutton's answer was very informative. He said, unlike other prisoners, I never decorated my cell. In other words, I never made my prison cell home. Many of us are not only in prison, but we've decorated that place because it's home to us. We've decided since there's no way out of here, I might as well learn to live with it. I might as well make myself at home. I might as well make myself comfortable because I'm never going to get out of this mess. I've been here too long. I've gone too deep. I will never find freedom. So let me just resign myself to living a defeated Christian life. That's the lie of the enemy. The spirit of God is always the spirit of liberty. The spirit that is not of God is a spirit of bondage and oppression and depression. Now, the spirit of God sometimes convicts painfully, but he is always the spirit of liberty. If you think about it, God who made the birds never made bird cages. It is men who make bird cages. And after a while, if we are not careful, we can become just like those birds and become so cramped in these jails we have made for ourselves that all we can do is stand on one leg and pitifully chirp. But when we get out into God's great free life, we discover that this is the way God meant us to live, which is the glorious liberty of the children of God. But freedom does not mean the absence or constraints of moral absolutes. Here's a good example. Suppose a skydiver at 10,000 feet announces to the rest of the group, I'm not using a parachute this time. I want real freedom. The fact that the skydiver is constrained by a greater law, the law of gravity. 
But when the skydiver chooses the constraint of the parachute, she is now free to enjoy the exhilaration. God's moral laws act exactly the same way. They restrain, but they are absolutely necessary to enjoy the exhilaration of real freedom. Only the truth will set you free. Being closely in touch with the truth and living in accordance with the truth will set you free. You say, uh, maybe that's true in the empirical realm, in the scientific realm, but not necessarily true in the spiritual and moral realm. Oh, really? Then you think you can just live your life any way you want. I think I can say without fear of contradiction, for example... If you live for money and only for money, if you live only to make money, if you live only to spend money, if you live only to have money and nothing else matters to you, that will shrivel your soul. You will destroy all your relationships. You might even work too hard and ruin your health and your body. Why? Because you have run aground on the rocks of a moral and spiritual reality that's there whether you believe it or not. It's there. It's just the way that things are, the way God has set things up. But now you are out of accord with the truth and how human beings are supposed to live according to God. Once again, proving that the truth of the Lord and only that truth can set us free. Truth is much more important, I think, than any of us truly realize. Freedom comes from submission to the truth not getting away from it. The fact that we have been saved frees us from God's guilt and judgment, from guilt and God's judgment. The fact that we are being saved frees us from the bondage of our own self-centeredness. And the fact that we shall be saved frees us from all fear about the future. As Charles Wesley's hymn, magnificent hymn, and can it be so wonderfully summarizes, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's might, or night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. As we close this morning, I want you to know that God wants you to be free and to enjoy a life full of purpose. If you want to leave a legacy, may it be that you lived to please God. There was a band of minstrels who traveled through Europe many years ago. There would be a dinner and a show, and while the dinner was served, they would do their little skit. When the winter came that year, fewer people were showing up, and the economy took a downturn. So fewer and fewer people were coming to the dinner show. One evening, a very discouraged cast member spoke up and said, look, let's find out who these few people are who bought tickets and just give them their money back. We only had a handful of people last night, and there are even fewer tonight. Let's just quit. Who cares about this show anymore? It was then that one of the older cast members spoke up and said, no, we owe it to those who bought tickets to give them the best possible performance. Even if there are only two people, let's perform as if there were 20,000. 
He rallied them to go on, and that night they gave their best performance ever. After the show was over, the cast member ran up to the others and said, You guys, look at this. He was trembling, holding a little note in his hand. He opened it up and it said, Thank you for a wonderful performance. Signed, your king. The king happened to be in the restaurant that night as he was traveling through Europe. They pleased their king, and that was all that they needed to know. Listen to me. If you are a Christian, the world is not going to approve of your lifestyle. But as long as we have the stamp of God's approval, that's really all that matters. And so let's live like the free people we really are. And Lord, I do thank you because I was in bondage. I remember those days shackled in chains of sin, Lord. And uh, only you, Father, through the Lord Jesus can uh, give man freedom. And not just freedom, Lord, but purpose in life and joy. And not just joy down here, Lord, but a joy that we can't even possibly begin to comprehend on the other side. So I pray, Lord, that everyone that's listening, whether in this room or throughout the Internet, that, Lord, you would speak to their hearts. If they are bound by anything, I pray that they would realize that there is freedom, and that freedom is for them, for you paid the price. We ask these things in your name. Amen.